Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, good to see some of you here at this service. We had a good first service. I invite you to listen to the message, the 8 o'clock message, which is different than this one. It was dealing with education, and I think it'd be uh, important for all students and staff at least to listen to that and others as well, because it gives uh, kind of an overview of why it is or how it is that schools lose their identity. And so I encourage you to listen to that. I think it will be archived on the, uh, the website. We're in a series on the Sabbath, and I don't know exactly how many messages I've preached now on the Sabbath, but it's a number. And there's probably a number of more that we need to consider Last week was the Sabbath and ecology, and someone came to me afterwards and asked if it was okay to kill bugs. And uh, it's okay. You can kill bugs. And um, there's actually some inspired counsel on that. Just look up insects and bugs, and you will be overjoyed. Now, I don't think you want to make a career just of killing bugs, but if they're bothering you, so... Today, though, we want to move on to another nuance of Sabbatarianism, and that is the Sabbath and the economy. So let's just ask the Lord to be with us as we we study this. Father in heaven, thank you today that we have another day of life, and we have not just any day, we have the Sabbath day, which you've promised And also demonstrated that you enter into the Sabbath day. You did seven Sabbath miracles. And you want to do some miracles today. And I don't know what those are. But I don't want to get in the way of those. And none of us here do. We ask that you would send your angels around. Not because we're worthy. But because you've promised that if we confess your name that you'll confess our name before the Father and he'll send the angels. And so we ask you to do that. And we ask that you allow us to hear your voice speaking to us individually. In Christ's name, amen. Um, So we're going to talk about the Sabbath and the economy, but perhaps first I should ask this question. And many people agree on the answer to this question, and I'm sure maybe some of you have thought about it, but what would you say is the central economic institution of civilized societies? What is the central institution of civilized societies? Probably can't hear you with the additional noise. Anybody? What? All right. The central economic institution. Well, that's, you know, the word eco comes from the word domos and oikos, so it is the master of the house. So in a sense, you know, you could say you're correct. The Greek word actually means that. But actually, the central tenet or the central institution of civilized society is personal property ownership. 
In every civilized society, it's built around personal property ownership. Now, is ownership, personal property ownership, biblical? Could you give any Bible text that prove that personal property and ownership is biblical? Do not covet property, right? Anyone else? Well, there's a couple stories you might remember. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were trying to take Naboth's vineyard. Remember that? And the whole idea was that this was personal property. You don't take it. 1 Kings 21, 25. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. She wanted that piece of property, and she wanted it now. The Bible says taking someone's property is bad. This <laughs> is sin. There's another one, a number of these. Deuteronomy 19.4. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stone. So not just take the property. Don't mess around with the boundary stones. Cursed is the man, Deuteronomy 27, 17, who removes his neighbor's boundary stone. You've got blessings and cursings, but if you take away the boundary stone, that's not good. Men move boundary stones. They pasture flocks they have stolen. Job 24, 2. And all these are seen as very negative. But they also affirm the positive. That God's children were meant to have personal property. And there's no land or property taxes in the Bible. How many think we need to get back to the Bible? (laughs) And the idea was that No property taxes because you don't want to put in jeopardy the idea or that your personal property could be foreclosed on or stolen from you. No taxes on property. There were other taxes, but not on property. And you really couldn't steal someone else's land forever, even in the Bible. There was the year of Jubilee. Everyone was given their property. They could really mess up and lose it for 50 years. In other words, that generation who was maybe not so talented financially. But they got it back after 50 years. How many want to get back to the Bible? Also, there was a bankrupt clause in the Bible. Every seven years, if you had messed it up, you started over. Man, this doesn't sound like it'd be good to live in Bible times. Now, during the Reformation, when revival and Reformation came as a result of the study of God's Word, these texts became a point of focus and discussion, and the discussion was connected to the consideration of these words in light of the Ten Commandments. And in our scripture reading today, we had the Sabbath commandment 
And then we had the next commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Certainly he's sovereign, he owns all things, we're but stewards, but he does give us land and houses and possessions as personal property, and it incentivizes us to desire to take care of those flowers in front of our house next to the yellow chairs or wherever we live. So, John Calvin said this, Removing the boundary stone is an act of double deceit, for it is both an act of theft, thou shalt not steal, and an act of false witness, thou shalt not bear false witness. Interesting, this discussion. Now, it might surprise you that to have John Calvin say something like that was very radical because he was reforming the church. There had been a revival on the basis of the study of the Scripture. And it was bringing a reformation to the medieval church. And the church of that time, and even up to our day, did and does not believe in the concept of personal property. In fact, they didn't believe in the concept of almost personal anything. For all men, said one of the church fathers, possessions are sins. The ownership of personal prophecy was to be rejected, but why? Thomas Aquinas, the most influential philosopher and theologian in the Catholic Church for the last 800 years and remaining so today, said because personal property was an invention of men and not based on what he called natural law. So what is natural law? Well, it was one of four laws that he got from Aristotle. See, his whole idea was synthesizing Roman Catholic theology with Aristotle, systematizing it into not only a theological system, but into an economic system. And so he would teach this. There are four laws. Number one, eternal law. God's plan for the universe and all its inhabitants. That's eternal law. Number two, natural law, which is the participation of rational creatures in the eternal law. And then there was positive law or human law, which was customs, laws, Regulations made by rulers attempting to apply natural law to individuals and societies. And property was under this. Simply a human law, not a divine law. Even though I just read you the texts. Most people didn't read their Bibles back then, but they just listened. And then finally there was the divine law, such as the Ten Commandments, which I just read to you from. So what were the four laws? Let me see if you're listening. First of all, you're not listening. Uh, it's not good. It's not good. You can't really follow the sermon unless you're listening. So you, maybe you want to take notes. Okay, first of all was? Eternal law. Secondly? Good, there were some people listening. Third? Positive law or human law. And finally? Divine law. Now, let me just give you a clue. 
Adding to God's law is always dangerous. Or changing God's law is dangerous. But these were the laws. Thomas Aquinas, doctor of the church, most important theologian, 800 years. He would say this, though private property is not contrary to natural law, it is not itself natural law, it is not itself nature, it does enjoy the same, doesn't enjoy the same metaphysical or ethical status in the community of goods. While men cannot change natural law, they are rather required to conform to it, according to Roman Catholic thought. They can change positive law, and they may do so in whatever manner is expedient or moral. So there is a, you can change these laws, and if it's expedient, what does that mean? If it's good for you, and if it's moral, well, who decides what's expedient? Who decides what's moral? That would be the Roman Catholic Church would decide that. But it's also decided on something else. By the way, hang in here, because when you hang in here, you're going to understand the news you saw last week, okay? (laughs) And if you would like to read a book book about this, The Economic and Political Thought of the Roman Church by John W. Robbins, I'm basing a lot of this of what I'm saying on this excellent study. And by the way, he had a hard time, this is his dissertation, he had a hard time getting it published because he got kicked out of a number of universities because they didn't want people reading what I'm reading to you today. So, how do you determine what's expedient? He would say, based on need. Need. Neither the early church theologians nor Thomas informed us what need is or how it might be ascertained. Furthermore, the needy person and the public authorities seem to be the proper judges of whether or not someone needs something. But basically this boiled down to the fact that need was what defined whether or not you could break positive law concerning property. From these doctrines of natural community of goods and moral primacy of need developed all forms of anti-capitalist social organizations that the Roman church state has supported for the past thousand years. They have not changed their doctrine at all. The Roman Catholic doctrine of private property is echoed in the 19th century communist slogan, from each according to his ability to each according to his... Need. We need you to move. We need you to be in a collective housing unit. And I remember visiting Romania for the first time. And everywhere we went, there were towers watching where you went and everything you did. This is another mechanism of Roman Catholicism, and that is to try and find a way to monitor everything you do. Maybe, if they were smart, they'd invent a cell phone that's not ten feet away from you ever. But that's another sermon. 
Because the goods of some, this is Thomas now from his Summa Theologica, because the goods of some are due to others by natural law, which is the highest law in his hierarchy of laws, higher than even divine law, but he would say it comes from the divine and eternal law, because the goods of some are due to others by natural law, there is no sin if the poor take the goods of their neighbors. Thomas wrote, In cases of need, all things are common property. So there would, be, there would seem to be no sin in taking those property, for the need has made it common. It's a part of the common home. It's a part of the common good, the common earth. And you need it. So take it. How many are getting nervous? Better leave a guard at your house. Nor is such taking of another property, another's property a sin or a crime, according to Thomas. The most impactful theologian of the church for 800 years and even today says this, It is lawful for a man to succor his own need by means of another's property by taking it either openly or secretly, nor is this, properly speaking, theft or robbery. It is not theft, properly speaking, to take secretly, to take secretly and use another's property in case of extreme need. Because that which he takes for the support of his life becomes his own property by reason of that need. And in case of like need, a man may also take secretly another's property in order to succor his neighbor's need. Now, you think this is not practical, but how many of you have a sister that always takes the clothes out of your, your, your closet without asking you? You say, look, you're operating by Thomas Aquinas, medieval theology. Stop it! If you're going to take my blouse, you're renting it from me. It's $13. And if you say, well, don't you know how to share? Yeah, well, what is coming my way? This is a Protestant discussion. How many want to have Protestant discussions? The other day I was talking to someone who were engaged in this very type of discussion. Not only boys can, girls can do this, but also boys. I mean... Collectivists of all sort agree with Thomas that those in need are morally and legally justified in taking the goods of their neighbors. Perhaps if they are inconsistent or hesitant, they may not defend looting or direct expropriation of property owners, reading this from this book on personal property, the chapter, but they do endorse indirect action through government expropriation, taxation, and regulation. You hear it all the time in the news. These rich people, that's not theirs. It's ours. Now we're going to take it. Because we need it. It's Roman Catholic thought. You're hearing it on the news. The Thomistic notions that private property is merely a construct of human reason and government and that need gives needy title to the goods of others, out of the reason the Roman Catholic bishops in Brazil, this book was written, I don't know, when I first read it, it must have been 20 years ago, 
When was this written? Mm. I don't know. Can't find it. I got to talk to the librarian. Oh, it's 1999. Year 2000. So the bishops in Brazil were talking, and they said, based on this doctrine, that looting is neither a sin nor a crime. The needs of the looters give the looters title to the goods they're taking. According to Roman Catholic doctrine, the looters are, by natural and divine law, the rightful owners of those things they're taking. Throughout Central America and the places where the current Franciscan Pope grew up, this was the modus operandi of bringing social change. Protests, looting, rioting, all on the basis of the law of natural law, no, positive law, and natural law, rather, motivated by what? Need. Need. You don't pay someone what they're doing in terms of work. You pay them by the number of children they have. Because they need it. How many of you are understanding this reasoning? And now you may understand the news more fully. Protests in 380 cities across 50 states. An appeal for peaceful protests. But some people having a hard time saying peaceful protests. Why are they having such a hard time saying peaceful progress? Because that would be against the teaching they have received. How many of you are understanding what I'm saying? They read closely Thomas Law or Thomas' interpretation of what were the four types of law? Eternal, natural, and divine. They have no problems with a religious, godly basis promoting those things. In fact, they should. September 30, 2020, Catholic News Agency, just a couple days ago, Pope Francis calls, quote, for a new economic model to rebuild post-coronavirus world. Rebuild the post-coronavirus world. We need a new model. The theme of his letter, I think Dr. Nelly may appreciate, maybe he copied it from, I don't know. The theme of this letter was healing the world. You've been talking to him? <laughs> to heal a hurting world, that's the theme of the newsletter. And he speaks of, quote, desiring to encourage a generation of, new, of a new and better world. Certainly we cannot, he says, expect the economic model that underlies unfair and unsustainable development to solve our problems. What's he saying there? He makes it clear. We can't give tax breaks for the rich. The trickle down never trickles down. 
And he says, be leery of this economic system. What economic system is he talking about? Capitalism. We need to change the economic model. Well, how's it going to be changed? Who's going to change it? Who's going to guide that? Well, he, he's got some ideas himself. And he also has some precedents, which I just shared with you. We need to anchor ourselves, he says, quote, in the principles of the social doctrine of the church. We know what the social doctrine of the church is. We just read it. Is it a new approach? He would almost have us think it's a new approach. But it's 800 to 1,000 years old. And he says, be leery of any other system. But I want to tell you today, be leery of that system. And I'll tell you why. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 373. It is at the time of the national apostasy when acting on the policy of Satan, the rulers of the land will rank themselves on the side of the man of sin. Code language for the papacy. It is then the measure of guilt is full The national apostasy is a signal for national ruin. Let me ask you a question. Are we any nearer national ruin today than we were six months ago? How many would say, yeah, I think we are? $26 trillion? I don't know, I have a graphic here somewhere. I've got so many documents that I... I don't know, it's not in this one. (laughs) I was going to break down how long it would take to pay back, how much each of you owe. (laughs) Right now, we could take care of this. Roman Catholic principles. This is another quote from Review and Herald, 1897. Roman Catholic principles. What are we talking about right now? What are we talking about right now? Roman Catholic principles. Okay? Social doctrine of the church. That's what we're talking about. Roman Catholic principles will be taken under the care and protection of the state. In other words, they're going to accept the social doctrines. You wonder where all these discussions about rights come from? Distribution of wealth come from? You wonder where that comes from? It comes from Aristotle, baptized by Aquinas. Talked about by a population that is increasingly nominally Roman Catholic. So Roman Catholic principles were taken under the care and protection of the state. That's happening right now. This is present truth in the largest way I've ever seen it. What is this called? This national apostasy will speedily be followed. I'm underlining my document when I talk to you because it's so important. It will speedily be followed by national ruin. I don't know. 
$26 trillion in debt. If you have money and you want to play the money, it's probably the, you might want to do that. <laughs> Did the system, by the way, that's being suggested, if the Pope had his way, what was the system that he actually ran that he wants us to go back to in the medieval time period? People were living in fear and bondage. It was a system based on illiteracy, a system based on serfdom. In fact, serfdom is slavery. How many think we want to go back to slavery? In fact, I want to talk about that more. I'm going to talk about that next week. Slavery on the Sabbath. The entire system was funneling money to the church-state hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church from all kinds of lands. A system that created and then manipulated the poor. A system that was based on untrue doctrines such as the immortal soul. You don't really die. We want you to stay alive so we can get you afraid and we can keep you paying to get your soul out of hell or your relative soul out of hell. And there's also eternal torment if you don't do that. What an incentive to bring those taxes in. Bible, it does talk about soul 1,800 times, but never immortal soul. But the poor souls couldn't even read the Bible. And so there was a system of seven sacraments, each monetized, each commoditized, a commodity, a sale of salvation. They even had within the system where you could pay to indulge any sin you wanted. And they would sell you an indulgence is where we get the word to go ahead and indulge because you bought an indulgence. How many think we want to go back to that system? That is the supposedly new system. The only problem the Catholic Church has with money-making societies is that they're no longer making the money. How many of you have followed what I just said? The Bible and interpreters of the Bible called the leader of this system a little horn who it predicted would seek to change times and laws. (laughs) And you can see that, that it wasn't just the Sabbath, which we're coming to in a minute. It was laws. Daniel 7, 8, and 25. And as he did so, he would notice this phrase, cast truth to the ground. And in doing this, it would cause him to prosper. Make no mistake, even today, the medieval church, as its modern expression, knows how to make money. I go there every year on a pilgrimage, not to see the Pope, but to show exactly what's going on. The entire city is built for pilgrimage and for money. (laughs) I remember the first time I went there, I said, I'm not giving any money to this organization. (laughs) I I told my wife, we're not going. We're not going to go to the Vatican. We're not going there. She goes, come on. I was like, no, I'm just giving them money. I feel feel bad doing that. And then I looked, (laughs) and it was the fifth Sunday of the month. 
and it was free to go in the Vatican. I was staying at Hotel Nardisi. Told my wife, you know it ain't easy when we were staying at Nardisi. Anyway, so we went down there. Now listen to this. Casting truth to the ground and prospering. You would think with all the monetization of all those different things, whether it be baptism when you're born or extreme unction when you die, whatever it is, all costs money and all will go into the coffers. Huge buildings, all kinds of rituals, all kinds of things that had to happen. And then a whole bunch of meditating monks who did nothing and meditating nuns who did very little. And that cost a lot. But they also brought in a lot of money. Basically, the Protestant Reformation said, it ain't that expensive, guys. You go direct. You don't need any of you. And let me show you from the Bible. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Oops. You don't need all the monasteries. Oops. And this is how the Reformation turned economically. But listen to this. The Franciscans, on top of all this, what's our Pope's name? I mean, your Pope's name? I mean, the Pope's name? What's his name? He's named after who? The Franciscans. What would the Franciscans do? On top of it all, after having to pay through the nose for something that was untrue, they would beg. They're all over the place. They're not working. They're begging. Oh, help me. No one should have given any of them a red cent. And this guy is named after Franciscans, and he wants us now to follow his leadership, and unfortunately, we're already following it with our social policies. And we're approaching national ruin. I have an economist here in the front row nodding his head. We're going to have a meeting this afternoon, and we have a list of 20 questions we're going to go through how should we relate to these areas that are related to the economy? How many would be interested in that discussion? Okay. That's a lot of you. Actually, not so many. It's going to be at 4 o'clock right here on the green carpet. So, I want to read one last thing here. These monasteries were full. All the Franciscans were begging. This was all driven by the Jesuits. Listen to this quote from Great Controversy 279. With the flight of the Huguenots, now let me ask you a question. Did you know who the Huguenots are? Huguenots are some of the most wealthy people in America today. They love America, and they're terrified of what I'm talking about. And if I started to name your names, you'd go, wow. The flight of the Huguenots, a general decline settled upon France. Flourishing manufacturing cities fell into decay. Fertile districts returned to their native wilderness. Intellectual dullness, moral declension, succeeded a period of unwanted progress. Paris became one vast almshouse, and it's estimated that at the breaking out of the revolution, that's the French Revolution in 1793, I think it was, 200,000 paupers claimed charity from the hands of the king. Jesuits, the Jesuits alone flourished in the decaying nation. Listen to that. The Jesuits 
alone flourished in the detained nation and ruled with dreadful tyranny over churches and schools, the prisons and the galleys. And this is what we're being asked to go back to and we give a stage at the United Nations and we have all kinds of ministers of every denomination saying, let's go and you educate us in the new way to do government. So how did it turn around and what can we learn? The Reformation turned things around. There was this little monk. There was this little priest named Wycliffe. He started to read his Bible. And what got his attention was when the Roman church-state power said to England, you have 33 years where you haven't paid us what we were owed for the doctrines of salvation for your district. 33 years. He said, there's something wrong with that. And he began to study his Bible. And he says, that's wrong. <laughs> that's wrong. That's really wrong. And guess what he decided? I'm going to translate something so people can understand what's wrong. Guess what he translated? Besides the Bible. The first part of the Bible he translated. You, you all said Bible, right? What did he translate? The Ten Commandments. And I showed you. Why he would translate the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not. He's saying this is against the Ten Commandments. <laughs> His writings were emailed to Huss. Who was living during the time where there were three popes. Each calling each other the Antichrist. You thought the Protestants called the Pope the Antichrist first? No. They were calling each other Antichrist. And they were all fighting because they all had their little kind of economic system. One in Avignon. One in Rome. And one in Germany. And they were all fighting with each other. But this was Pope John XXIII. And Pope John says, look, I need help going down to fight this battle. People in Naples. So... I need to raise some money. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? How can I uh, monetize this? Oh, yeah. Indulgences. <laughs> I'll sell some indulgences. And, you know, we'll make it big. We'll make a lot of money because we have the system. And Huss said, you're not hustling us anymore. That's it. No. He'd been reading Wycliffe. He said, we're, we, we might be dumb, but we're not that dumb. And you know what he did? Stood up. He preached in Bethlehem Chapel, the Word of God. And guess what he did when he traveled around? He got so bad they were going to kill him, so he said, look, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take a sabbatical. He goes down to the countryside. When he was out in the countryside, guess what he did? He handed out copies of the... Did I hear it? Ten Commandments. Can you say amen? Luther, 100 years later, gets ecked on by Jonathan. Jonathan Eck. And he's defending himself. And Eck says, you're a Hussite. He goes, what's that? And he goes and he looks up Huss's writings. And he finds in Huss's writing, he goes, yeah, I am a Hussite. And then he says, look, he also had these copies of the Ten Commandments. So he wrote a book on the Ten Commandments. He talked about... Personal property. <laughs> and people started to come a lot. Oh, by the way, a little bit more. Uh, Luther, 
same time as Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn's dad. Anne Boleyn didn't fare so well. Mary divorce died. Mary divorce survived. He was, she was one of the ones that died. Anne Boleyn's dad gave a copy of the Ten Commandments to Henry VIII. And he goes, yeah, that's good. Good argument. He wasn't that converted. Edward was, his son. He was truly a Protestant. And he took those Ten Commandments and he put them in the book of prayer, common prayer. They would pray the commandments now. Can you see what's happening? The commandments are changing things. They bring freedom. The commandments are a law of liberty. Taking out of bondage. James followed on with the same thing. He was kind of a snarly guy, but he also brought together the King James Version. He had some real problems. I'll talk about that in another sermon, but we won't get into that now. But he did do one good thing, and that's the King James Bible. And then following James came the Virgin Queen. Well, there was Mary that killed a bunch of people. She was Catholic. But then you have Elizabeth, who was the Virgin Queen. And guess what she did? She kicked it up a notch. Don't just talk about the Ten Commandments. Don't just pray about them. We're putting them right where they used to say, this is the body of Christ. This is his body. Right where the mass was said. Right there. Put right there. A copy of the Ten Commandments. So in all the churches across England, you can even see it today, and Scotland, and other mostly England I'm talking about, they had placards or pictures of the Ten Commandments. Is this true, Clive? All over the place. Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments. It was the sign of revival and reformation and the end of stealing and lying <laughs> and taking. And people said, we need the Lord. And then came the Puritans. The Puritans focused in fully on the Ten Commandments. They wrote books I'm reading some of them now. These are brilliant treatises of how to live by the Ten Commandments. It makes me, I read it, I get so convicted. Whoa, I didn't see that. Boom! <laughs> These guys were tight. And by the way, when you put the Ten Commandments up, let's say we put the Ten Commandments right up here. Which one is the biggest commandment? Which one has the most words? The fourth. And many of those placards actually had as the central piece the Sabbath. And this was bringing physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual revival. The Reformation revived people. (laughs) There was the birth of science, the birth of medicine, the birth of health. Things began to burst on the scene that never were there before. They begin to ask the question, where did this all come from? Think about the Sabbath commandment for a moment. The Puritans had a special focus on the Sabbath commandment. It defined them. Now they had the wrong day. Some of them had the right day. There are people that had the right day. Not very many. Most of them had the right concept applied to Sunday. But does the Sabbath do anything for the economy? Listen to this. Quoting another research paper I read. In consequation, in consequence, not consequation, that's a new word. <laughs> Try that out, consequation. <laughs> so I got cross between consequence and consecration. <laughs> All right. The consequence of the Reformation and Reformation 
Protestant Reformation, led to this, a considerable reduction in holy days. <laughs> they used to have all these holidays that were not holy at all. They're just ways to make money. They got rid of those and they replaced them with work day. Can you say amen? And think about the Sabbath commandment for a moment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. you got to work hard for how many days? Some of you are out there working only five days. You're not Puritans. You're slackers. <laughs> and they held you to it. They said, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Work! And it developed the Protestant work ethic. Max Weber wrote about it. And you know what? People fight against that book, but there's new research out. They did research. How many like research? They went back and they looked at all the things that happened right after the Reformation. By the way, there were no books written on the economy till after the Protestant Reformation. No books on the economy. They started studying. They go, something happened. Boom. What is it? And that's when they started studying the economy. 16th, 17th, 18th century, they started to write more and more about the economy. They go, what is it that happened? <laughs> and as they were studying in Germany, this particular, so I can show it to you, it's a fascinating, it's got all the graphs and everything, but I'm kind of sick of PowerPoint. <laughs> so, do you get my point? Was it powerful? Okay, so, they did all these graphs, and they, they pulled all the work permits and all the construction permits. They went back into the archives. Who was building in the 1500s? Sometimes you can do that. You can't do that here, you know. The chickmunks, chickmunks were building here, no one else. But they went back, and they found those work permits, and guess what they discovered? There was a flurry of activity that was related to personal property and municipal properties and people were out, and they were working on their properties, and they were having incentives, and the economy was going up as their buildings went up. And now you can document that Max Weber was actually correct. Ellen White says the same thing in the book, Ministry of Healing, Help for the Homeless. Read that chapter. Read that chapter if you want to have a provocative. We'll read that this afternoon when we're doing our study. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. I read in some statements of the Puritans, you really can't keep the Sabbath if you didn't work. Work, and the Sabbath will be more sweet. Do thy work. Thy work. I think one Puritan wrote like 30 pages on thy. It's not someone else's work. It's not the Pope's work. It's not someone else's. Thy work. <laughs> and Calvin said, you know what? If this is true, work is like worship. Take it seriously. Work as unto the Lord. And now work is seen as holy and sacred as you're getting ready for that day of rest. Because you can overwork. And you can begin to think your work saves you. And so God says, no, 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 no. Remember that the first commandment I gave when I brought my people out of Egypt was the Sabbath commandment in Exodus 16. 
Exodus 5 actually, come out to keep a Sabbath and remember that you were a slave and I brought you out. How many are beginning to see the economic significance of the Sabbath day? I remember I was on a plane with someone coming back from a Latin American country. I think it was Venezuela. Now you can only take a one-way trip there, but you could go back and forth. And I was driving back, flying back with this guy, and he goes, I said, so you want to go to America? Why do you want to go to America? Um, he goes, well, it's the land of opportunity. I said, what, do you don't have any opportunities here? Not really. Well, what do you mean? Well, anytime you try and work, there's always a holiday. They take all your money. You got all these taxes. You got anything? I never can make any money. I, I'm leaving. You know, that's what has happened in all of these Protestant countries. They even have research as recently as 2009 that I was reading that shows that in every single one of the Protestant countries, the economy is much better than any of the other surrounding Catholic countries. That's even today. In fact, this week, making the news, kind of unfortunately, I thought, Geneva increased their minimum wage to $25 an hour. They're rich. Everybody have been to Geneva. Everything costs a lot. It's rich. It's very nice. It's a Protestant country. Very interesting. All right. So there's financial flourishing. And this is what they said, Robin said in his book, some astute observers noticed that this order, a human order not achieved by human design, was a phenomena that required an explanation. <laughs> Can you say hallelujah? Am I giving you an explanation? Hello? That's what I'm doing. Now, they put limits on it because it was so effective. Luther made a clear distinction between his ideal Christian state as a model capitalist reality. He wrote to the councilman of Danzig in 1525, interest was something entirely normal and permissible if certain rates and boundaries were not exceeded, only 5 to 6%. You couldn't go beyond that. If someone went beyond that, he'd preach a sermon against them and write a book. He wrote a book every two weeks. If you go, he wrote a book. Did the economy flourish in Wittenberg? <laughs> Writing a book every two weeks? They had printing presses. They had a huge university. Everything tanked. And by the way, they emptied out all the monasteries. They got all that money. He got a wife. Now, why was it that the Catholic Church didn't believe in personal property, but it also didn't believe in usury until recently? That is interest. Instead, guess what they did? They would send all their money to the Jews. Did you hear what I said? They would send all their money to who? Because they said, you guys can charge interest and do whatever you want, but we can't because we're Christians. And then when their finances went bad, guess who they killed? Guess who they killed? The Jews. And what day did the Jews keep? And so anti-Semitism went against Sabbatarianism. How many of you understand what I'm saying? So the Sabbath was the first day that was kept coming out of Egypt. It was also the sign of liberation based on creation. A new world was created. A new order was created in Exodus 28 through 11. 
and their covenant identity now is seen in Exodus 31, 13 through 17, which we heard a message on the other day, and also Ezekiel 20. Now, how many of you think this has been fascinating? But you know what they said, and I want to leave this with you. My wife said to me, so what? Is my wife here anywhere? So what? I said, man, I'm so glad you said that to me. Because we've got to answer the question, so what? So what? Is this sermon important? Why? You tell me. Why is the sermon important? This is a dud. That's it. I'm done. Why is the sermon important? History is repeating itself. Image of the beast is being set up. National ruin. I used to think, Sunday law, then national ruin. Now I'm thinking, apostasy, national ruin, Sunday law, national ruin. Because as I read those quotes more closely, there are quotes that talk about giving countenance, giving attention to. We are living in the last days. If $26 trillion does not get your attention, you probably have problems with your credit card debt too. (laughs) And that's another thing. Do we need to be learning how to live without money? Our gospel is without money or without price. Hallelujah! Protestant Reformation said, you can go direct... Get rid of all that other stuff. Catholics never have liked it. We want to get it back. We've got to get the money back. We've got to figure out a way. Let's concoct four laws, three laws that aren't there. <laughs> Make up categories and then say we can change them. The papacy thought to change laws as it relates to social Life, and they will think to change laws as it relates to the Sabbath. They already have done that in the past. They'll do it again. So how many of you think, I was talking to my students this week in one of my classes, I said, what do you think the biggest problem is with preaching? And one of them said, people don't listen to you. I said, why don't they listen to you? They don't really believe it. They don't really believe Jesus is coming soon. Oh, they just come, yeah, they like it. It's a cultural thing. Listen to Don, he's a little wound up today. We don't have anything else to do. We can't go to the restaurant. It's closed. It's COVID-19. But let me ask you this question. Do you believe that Christ is coming again? And do you believe he's coming soon? Is there a connection between what you're doing with your finances and with what you just said? I asked the people at my house last week, if there was only five years left, what would you do differently? I don't know if there's five years left. I'm not making, I'm not trying to be, you know, I can mention some names. I'm not setting dates. But when I read this, when I read this, and I realized that everything I'm seeing on the news is actually out of, Canon law, as interpreted by Thomas Aquinas, 
I started to kind of shake. <laughs> and so I thought I'd make you shave today because Jesus is coming soon. And we need to learn how to live within our means. And we need to learn how to live without any means. What does that mean for you? What does it mean to me? What does it mean for this institute? What does it mean for your business? What does it mean for your conversation today at lunch? I've been struggling with these things, I'll tell you. We can keep the Sabbath like people in Amos did. They kept it, but they couldn't wait, Amos 8, 4 through 7, till the sun went down so they could go out and exploit people. I'm asking myself, am I an Adventist legalist just keeping this day, or do I really believe Jesus is coming? Am I acting like that? Is that a good question to ask? Do I understand the gospel? Am I rejoicing in the early Reformation time period where righteousness by faith was the sweetest thing in life? Not the fruits of capitalism, but the fruits of the Spirit? Or am I rich and increased with goods and wretched, poor, pitiful, and blind when Jesus is knocking at the door? Is my first love Christ? Or is it the benefits of a capitalist society? Am I thinking with my resources, how can I give to someone else? How can I use less so more people can hear the gospel? Am I trying to steal people away from the hands of the devil? Save them might be a better word. I got to say, I've got a lot of work to do. I mean, I've got a lot of uh, growing to do. I don't think where I, I'm where I need to be. How many want to pray for me that I'll be where I need to be? How many want to join yourself in that? I told the elders the other day, Tom told me, look, would you invite the elders to the elders meeting to pray? I, I said, Why? well, they might listen to you more than, than me. I said, I, I don't think that's true. So I sent an email. I said, if you think Jesus is coming soon, come to the prayer session with us as elders tomorrow at 6 in the morning. I'll see who shows up. All I'm saying, folks, is it's late in the day. It's late in the day. We don't need sermonettes and make christenettes. We need the word of God heard and acted upon. You know, in all those lands, when they looked at them, why are they prospering? As they've looked at all, they said, because they read the Bible. Are you reading the Bible? Are you listening to the Bible? 
are you talking about the Bible? Not because I said it, because is there some kind of love in your heart for the God of the Bible? If you don't have it, how many want to say, look, I want to have it? Maybe read that chapter in Steps of Christ I read this week. The sinner's need of Christ. Maybe we need to surrender all. That chapter, total consecration and steps of Christ. Surrendering all. He surrendered all for you. Read those chapters. I've been pondering them. I'm saying, look, do I really love God? That's what I'm asking myself. Or am I just an actor? Thus, a subtractor. Actors or subtractors. I want to be converted. I want to be more converted, more deeply converted. How many of you want to join me in asking God more deeply converted? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.